I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Holdwood, Pennsylvania no-tiller Steve Groff is among the world's leaders on adapting no-till for vegetable production. A cover crop enthusiast, Groff has helped thousands of growers improve the health of their soils through field days, presentations and webinars, and his cover crop coaching business. Having successfully no-tilled tomatoes, corn, pumpkins, alfalfa, soybeans, wheat, and cover crops for nearly four decades, Groff is known for the introduction of the tillage radish as a cover crop and has demonstrated its ability to scavenge nutrients, reduce weed pressure, trim compaction, and boost soil quality. He recently tackled the hemp industry and, in summer 2020, released a book titled The Future Proof Farm. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I spoke with Groff about his book, which explores the market changes facing today's farmers and how cover crops can help them stay resilient and relevant. Tune in to hear Groff's thoughts on how soil health practices can lead to growing healthier food, why he cares about how his management practices affect people downstream, how cover crops have helped him reduce inputs, the importance of lifelong learning, and much, much more. So Steve, most of our audience is likely familiar with you already, of course, but Uh, would you mind uh, just talking about your farm operation a bit, describe your rotation, your cover cropping practices, et cetera? So uh, I've actually scaled back about 200 acres now. I say that because I'm growing a lot of specialized crops like pumpkins and squash and tomatoes. And I know I'm a little bit different than a lot of farmers out there in that respect, but I just want to do a better job of what I was doing. So I scaled back a little bit and also growing some CBD hemp as well. I do grow some corn and some hay uh, that I, both the corn and the hay is grown for the neighbors, my Amish neighbors for corn silage and also the hay. Also grow cover crop seeds like uh, black oats for cover crop seed. And then all my farm is uh, put into cover crops whenever there's an opportunity, summer into fall. So it's 100% cover cropped every year. So that's a synopsis of uh, what I do. Yeah. So how many different crops would you have in your operation Mm -hmm. in any given year? Yeah. When I say squash, I grow probably about 10 different varieties of squash, but let's just keep it to the main crops. Well, I'd have to think about that a little bit. So squash, pumpkins, tomatoes, corn for silage, silage corn, hay, cover crops for seed, hemp. That's the main one. So I guess it's, what is that, eight or ten crops, yeah. something like that. As far as my rotation goes, really centers around my pumpkins and squash because one-third of my acreage is dedicated to that. So we have a three-year rotation with that. I kind of really follow that pretty strictly. Then I just grow whatever other crops work out for the specific field in that year, whatever it is. Okay. And you've been doing no till for a really long time, right? Started in 1982 and was 100% in 1995 when I figured out the no-till vegetables. That was my barrier up to then. We figured that out 
How did you sort of get to no-till? How did you decide that that was mm-hmm. worth doing? Well, there was one reason, and that was because I had soil erosion. We had ditches that we needed to close in my highly erodible fields. After, well, it wasn't every year, but some years I had to get the tractor and the reloader out and close the ditches so I could cross them to harvest my crops. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that was right. Then there was nothing, soil health was not even a term. We didn't even know about that. But I was just trying to stop my soil erosion. For the ditches, more or less, it wasn't an environmental consciousness at that point. It was just like, I didn't like those ditches. And then when I started seeing some of the benefits, I didn't even expect. My true motive originally was just that, to eliminate erosion because of the pain of the ditches and harvesting. But then when I started realizing the soil health benefits, what we later termed it as, that's when I really got interested in trying to maximize this whole concept of no-till and then the use of cover crops. Yeah. And when did you start bringing the cover crops in? So I don't have a clean answer to that. My grandfather used cover crops in the 50s, so I'm told. And when me growing up working with my dad, if we could get cereal rye planted, we'd do it. Like I said, if we found time to do it. It was not intentional how much we could cover in a, in a given year. We always planted some. And then it was in the mid-90s when I really started ramping up my interest in cover crops because of a study that I started doing with Dr. Ray Weil on long-term use of cover crops. Because I was actually questioning at that time, do cover crops pay in the light of long-term no-till? And it's funny because do cover crops pay is probably one of the biggest barriers to farmers getting into it to this day, 25 years after that. So after four years, we had a drought here, a dry year, but my corn yielded 28 bushels more per acre where I had these cover crops four years previously. We had replicated plots. It was all scientific. It was under the auspices of the University of Maryland and Dr. Ray Weil. And I've never asked the question since, if cover crops pay. Now it's like, well, how do I maximize them paying? And then a couple years after that, in the early 2000s, is what began as the tillage radish. Eventually became the tillage radish. And you probably know that story a little bit, where I got involved with that, coined the term, and started cover crop seed business. And that's when cover crops really started taking off in the world, really, in the nation, in a more significant way through the early 2000s into 2012, 2015, till it really was gained enough momentum that we have a lot more buy-in from a lot more people because of it. So that's kind of my quick story right there. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, before we move on to talk about your book, I just wanted to uh, mm-hmm. back up. You mentioned hemp and I think I saw a video on Facebook. I think you were harvesting your hemp this year. So mm-hmm. curious, how's that going? And sort of fill me in on how's the market yeah. going for that? Yeah, well, we do some multiple harvests where we take the best buds off the flower, the best ones for different markets that we have. And we were a little wet in August, actually, a little above normal. Precipitation was isn't good for the final maturity of hemp. You want it on the drier side, it stays less mold issues and so forth. But since September and now up to present, we've been on the dry side. It's been really ideal. So actually planning on harvesting some tomorrow again. So it's going well. I started my own brand, my own CBD brand for CBD oil. I'm getting my own crop extracted now and Cedar Meadow Dot Farm. That's cedarmeadow.farm. You can look it up if you want. That's my brand that I'm going to promote heavily, my use of no-till and cover crops. That's a niche that I have, and so I intend to use it. And I'm sure some particular people that care about the environment will appreciate what I'm doing in the context of growing my hemp. Just real quick, are you transplanting hemp plants or are you actually seeding the plants directly? Doing both. Last year, we transplanted almost everything. We direct seeded some. I had some promise in direct seeding. This year, I expanded direct seeding. But I got to tell you, it's been a disappointment. The genetics 
have not been improved for seedling vigor. When we look at the genetics of hemp over the past decades, and here most recently since it's been legalized, it's been grown in greenhouses and as transplants. So the seedling vigor for those seeds has not been bred to go directly into soil and cooler soils in the spring and so forth. I liken it to this, and you'll understand it's back in the 80s and the 90s, when no-till started really taking off, you had to be careful which seed corn or which soybean varieties you got because you want to make sure you got varieties at early vigor and because there's a difference. And now seed companies have responded. You don't even have to think about that anymore. They're all good, all pretty much. And that's genetics. So the direct seeding of hemp, we're still a couple years away from that, but I think that's the future in the industry of hemp. I'm working with some seed breeders. Actually, we've been selecting some of the best cultivars here and we want to try to fix that. It's going to take us a little while, but that's the kind of stuff I love to do. That's the kind of research I love to do and because direct seeding is going to save a lot of money for growers compared to transplanting and time and ease of doing it and everything. But it, that aspect not arrived yet, gotcha. but we're going to work on it. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Happy to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, let's transition. You just came out mm-hmm. with a new book called The Future yes. Proof Farm. And I have to right. say it's really an enjoyable read. It's almost like talking oh, directly with you. So oh, why that's you, great. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us the premise of the book and what made you want to write it? Yeah, I like to tell people I've been threatening to write a book for 10 years, <laughs> kind of collecting my thoughts and uh, putting them in a book form. My premise, and this is in the title, The Future Proof Farm, the subtitle, Changing Mindsets in a Changing World, it basically leaps off the the whole soil health movement. And I try to connect the farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture, we'll call it, and the consumers who want their food to be grown in a way that somehow protects the environment. And I know I'm being very general in my statement there, but that's really what I want to do. So this book is for more than just farmers. I've been very pleased that the non-farmers who have read it have given me pretty good remarks. Like someone said, I expected it to be more technical. It's not a technical manual, as, as you've seen, on how to farm. What I wanted to do is to encourage farmers with some of the stories that I'm involved in to go for it or take it to the next level, whatever that means. And then also to tell farmers that, hey, there's an opportunity out here if we tell our story. But it's more than that. It's more about getting the right markets. And I also want to encourage those involved in the food supply chain to try to work with farmers in this whole effort of a more environmental, I'm going to call it more environmentally responsible grown food not only from the planet's perspective, but also from a nutrition perspective. And I touch on that because I believe that regenerative agriculture practices will yield a more nutritious food. That's a pretty elusive statement, if you will, but I think we need to be thinking more about that. Just because you plant a cover crop doesn't mean your corn is going to be higher in nutrition. I'm not making that claim, but anybody who's serious about the system, I feel will grow a more nutritious food product. If that's either for animals use like corn, soybeans and so forth, or for humans and vegetables or whatever humans consume directly. So, and then finally, the general public. I want the general public to know that there are actually farmers out there who are doing their best to protect the planet, what I like to say, and also to grow a good food product and also give them a window into a real farmer's life. Again, I hear that too, that people appreciate hearing my stories in the book. So that's pretty much why I wrote it. It is not specifically laser focused to one particular group, but it's anybody interested in food and food production is really who this book is for. I just want to showcase some examples of where I see the future headed 
in agriculture. And as big Frank Lasseter actually in his testimonial said that you don't know what's going on now, you may become obsolete as a farmer. Yeah. So a big sort of theme in there is you talk about consumers being able to track where their purchases come from mm-hmm. and also measure nutrient density in fresh food. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just talk about that a little bit more and why you think mm-hmm. farmers would be wise to pay attention to it? Yeah. So we have two things going on here. One thing is there's an interest in nutrition and it has to do with health care and also people a little bit more aware about what they're eating. This whole COVID thing, even though the book was completed before COVID ever hit, but it kind of fit in nicely where people might be a little bit more concerned about their health, their immunity and all that. And nutrition can really help support that. So you have this nutritional side here that, of course, everybody's going to want more nutrition. Then we have the technology that's being developed. That's the other side of the coin here where you can actually measure this it's coming. It's not all here where we want it to be. I mean, you can spend $800 or more and take a comprehensive test of what the nutritional component makeup is of the tomato you might buy at a grocery store. But the newest technology will be using your smartphone. And right now it's a plug-in little tool that you can literally kind of aim and point and see what the nutritional values are in a tomato or an apple or whatever you want to eat. I tested this thing. It's not quite ready, I don't think, for consumers yet or for the general use. It's not consistent as we like, but they're working on it. If that is developed to a point of, I'll say, you can tell the difference between a good apple and a bad apple, that's going to be a game changer. I feel. So I'm not here trying to overstate it or warn people or whatever. I'm just saying, hey, guys, this is what I see happening here. So if you're a farmer, you might want to consider doing some soil health practices on your farm because if this technology comes to fruition, they might not want your corn. If it doesn't come up, they might not pay you as much if it doesn't come up to a certain standard. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but the fact that ADM and Cargill and all these people are, they're kind of trying to figure out this whole regenerative agriculture thing. Just the fact that they're paying attention to me says a lot. And you kind of touched on this a minute ago, but in your book, you do mm-hmm. write about this connection between farming practices, crop nutrition, and taste. Like mm-hmm. you're saying that, is there research on that or is that sort of more... Uh... Uh, well, I can't point you to specific research. I can't. If it's out there, I can't. I'd have to look for it. I will say this, that the major component of taste is the genetic probably of the product. That's the tomato, let's just say that. Probably the genetics going to be their most effective influence on taste. Then mineral content, nutritional content, the vitamin content, all that can factor in toward better taste, better quality, better shelf life, all that. I mean, it just kind of goes without saying, if you have a good shelf life in a, I'll just use the tomato analogy because everybody understands it, it's going to be good for you. Again, to ask me to prove it with a scientific report, I don't have that at my fingertips. It might be out there. But I will say this, that like with the kogi nut squash example I used, that was bred by Cornell University to be more nutrient dense. And that's the first plant breeder that I'm aware of is actually breeding for nutrient density. They roast seven seeds. I mentioned them in the book. They've got a goal there is to breed for nutrient density. That's just unheard of. So that to me is where it's at. Their stuff really tastes good. Matter of fact, I had a Makogia squash first one of the year for lunch today. Oh, nice. I don't know if you read that quote or not in there. I, I say that the Kogi nut squash is so good that it doesn't need any help. Right. It doesn't need any sugar, or brown sugar, or butter. Well, it was funny today. My wife cooked it. She goes, well, Steve, 
you said in your book it doesn't need any help. Do you want brown sugar and butter on it? I'm like, no, I got to taste it like it is. And it did. It's like, wow, this stuff's good. But I got to admit, though, I did put a little dab of butter and a little pinch of brown sugar in it then. So. <laughs> well, you know, good can always be made better, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that's just an example there of what I see happening. That's, again, why I wrote the book is to give dozens and dozens of examples of why I believe the future is headed toward nutrient-dense stuff. You can't grow this next level of healthy food using our tried and true conventional practices of the past. You can put on all kinds of stuff. And when you say the word conventional, it means a lot of things. I don't want to stereotype too hard here, but basically we got to have life in the soil. You got to have biology function in the soil if you want the goodies in your food to come through, the vitamins and all that stuff. Just comes down to common sense, really. Okay. Yes. At one point Mm -hmm. in your book, you even say, quote, what got us here won't get us there. Yes. 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 (laughs) That's exactly what I'm talking about. We'll get back to my conversation with Steve Groff in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Steve Groff as he talks about farming in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. The area that you farm in is in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Can you give us a little background on sort of how you became aware of the water quality issues in the Bay, Mm -hmm. how farmers in the area have been affected, and some of the changes that have taken place? So the Chesapeake Bay has been kind of a pilot project, if you will, for the nation in water quality. And it was really hurting. The the Chesapeake Bay has been home to many industries, not only recreation, but also crabs and oysters and fish and all that stuff. And because it was polluted with too much sediment, phosphorus and nitrogen, there was too much algae growing and it took out the oxygen out of the water. There became dead zones, like hypoxy zones, like you hear about in Mississippi, the mouth of Mississippi. These zones come and go just like the Gulf hypoxy zone does. But it's a dead zone, and the farmers weren't responsible for all of it, but they were a significant part of it. So tell people, when I started doing conservation agriculture, I did not do it to protect Chesapeake Bay. Matter of fact, when the Chesapeake Bay, the groups that were trying to educate farmers and everything, I was kind of in the camp of, well, you guys don't know what you're talking about. We know how we got a farm. This is the way we farm. Too bad. But then I got to realizing, you know, hey, how would I feel if someone was affecting my farm theoretically upstream and was polluting my farm? because we were hurting livelihoods of fishermen. And that kind of impacted me, I guess. I was thinking, well, you know what? I changed my attitude, and this is a mindset. And this is what I keep referencing in the book, that if I do a good job on my farm that's located in the Chesapeake Bay, and by the way, everyone's farm's in a watershed somewhere. If I do a good job on my farm, keeping the nutrients on the farm, keeping the soil on the farm, the Chesapeake Bay will take care of itself. 
And so it's like, okay, it's not too much about the Chesapeake Bay. It is, but for me, it's like, I want to do the right thing on my farm. And if I keep the nutrients on my land, that's money in my pocket. That's the attitude I have now. But I've been to the Chesapeake Bay several times. I've talked to the fishermen. Again, there's stories in the book about it. And they have thanked me for what I've done in my part to try to help because the water is starting to get cleaner. It's getting better. The fish catches up. The crabs are coming up. Not dramatically, but we've turned a corner. And that's encouraging. It took like 30 years, but that's encouraging. And we still got more to do. We really, really do. But that being said, it's nice to know that some of our efforts are making a difference. I think it can be used as an example around the nation, around the world, that farming practices are to blame for some of this stuff. And I honestly feel that it can be fixed. It doesn't really cost the farmers a whole lot. Once they understand how the system works, and that's where the education comes in and how to do it. That's why you have your no-till conference and the cover crop strategies. And I do what I do. We're all trying to help everyone be a better farmer. And also, we're not activists. We're not environmentalists. But at the end of the day, we can influence the way things are in this uh, on this planet if we make sure our practices are doing the right thing. I like to say, I'm doing it for me. Sounds egotistical to say it, but the environment will take care of itself. That's my way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you haven't cut out using synthetic chemicals on your farm, from no. what I understand. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of fear and misinformation in the general public about chemicals. Oh, yeah. But you mm-hmm. seem to have a good way of talking with consumers and mm-hmm. sort of uh, explaining yeah. their role on your farm. Can you just share a little bit about how you do that and how do people then yeah. usually respond? So I've reduced my uh, use of uh, inputs, fertilizers, and chemicals. Insecticides in particular have all but eliminated them. You just don't need them anymore. I'm not saying one, two years. I'm talking 10 years. And it's a wonderful thing. It's working, I'll say. Using cover crops has helped me to reduce herbicides a bit, to reduce also nitrogen needs and fertilizer needs and so forth. So I've reduced them. It's a little hard for me to put an exact percentage because I grow so many different things here. It's uh, a little hard for me to come up with a number that I feel good about. So, But I've reduced them. My analogy with the general non-farming public, everybody hears about organic and everyone has a perception of what organic is. Most people don't understand that organic farmers do indeed use pesticides. It's just that they're natural pesticides. And yes, some of them are much more friendly to the environment, but not all. I don't want to bore you with details. They're not all that friendly. And some of their quote unquote insecticides do kill beneficial insects. You don't hear about that much. And also the use of tillage. That's a big thing with the organic that tillage kills earthworms. It kills a lot of things. And it's kind of like swept under the rug, if you will, I feel. And it's being a little disingenuous to the practice because I'd like to say there is no absolute ideal pinnacle of sustainability unless we all go out in the woods and forage for berries and nuts. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. Right. So where do we go from here? And I say we try to farm in nature's image as much as we know how to. And I'll guarantee you in five or ten years I will be doing things different because I'm learning. I'm learning with the rest of the world. I'm learning myself. I'm learning from others. We will get better. I'm convinced of that. And that involves both that the practices of working with biology and also working with technology. The, the pesticides that are out nowadays are much more narrower spectrum. This is all good. But my analogy I use with non-farming consumers is gasoline. Gasoline would be invented today. It probably would be illegal because it pollutes. You can get in a, a car and cars can kill people and injure people and a lot of risks. And you think about all of those risks are very low. And look at how cars have evolved over the last about 100 years. They've gotten much more fuel efficient. They've gotten much better in their polluting capabilities. 
but they still pollute and they still kill people. Okay, with farming, yeah, we do the best we can to raise our food and farming is all about a set of compromises, if you will, stepping down from the idealism of go out and foraging for berries and nuts. So I challenge people with that. You know, think about it. you willing to give up your car, willing to give up all that stuff. I'm not willing to give up that. And right now for me to make a living as a farmer, I'm going to use some chemicals, albeit very specifically and very intentionally. No longer the days are gone where we just nuke everything. So that's just an analogy that I use, uses the automobile and gasoline, and it usually resonates with people. Okay. So at one point in your book, you say soil shouldn't be on life support. You want to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> well, I think that's the way we've treated soil that way without really intentionally thinking that that's what we were doing. Because it was easier when you have something in a bag or a bottle to, to buy. If there's, if it goes back to, I think I mentioned there, the mindset of farmers are, well, what do I need to kill today? What insect is out there? What weed is out there? And what product can I kill it with? Rather than thinking, how am I going to put more life into my operation today right. or this year and work with nature? So that is a totally different mindset. It's not as easy because we've really not done a lot of research on understanding the biology. If the millions or billions of dollars that has been spent on inputs would be spent to understanding biology, I think we would be way far ahead. But the, the problem is you're not really selling a soil health bottle of soil health or a bag of soil health. You can't buy soil health. So there's no company out there selling soil health. Now they're selling products for soil health. I get that. But again, an analogy, because of that, you have all these companies saying, well, you need to use this fungicide on your corn because you're going to pay for it and you're actually going to get a few more bushels that will pay for it and it'll be a good ROI, return on investment. Where who makes any money when you talk about soil health other than some speakers that talk about it? Or but That's a challenge that we have. That's just the reality of the system that we're involved with. This is why I feel that it's going to be most effective for us to grow food that the consumers want because then we'll do what it needs to take. We'll figure it out, how to grow more nutritious food. And it's going to happen. And I'm not waiting around for universities or companies to tell me how to do this because there's very few out there. I'm working with the farmers, uh, the people I meet at the no-till conference, people I meet as I travel the world. This is where it, it literally is a grassroots effort. Now we have some of the universities that are trying to back us up and everything, but that's great. Yeah. But I would say by and large, the universities are not leading the charge, but we got some good things going with the NRCS and some of the universities for sure. I want to shortchange that, but it's really the farmers who are, I'm going to say, the bleeding edge of this movement. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how much innovation there is just out in the farms. And I don't think people know that. <laughs> I don't think the consumers I, out yeah, there know I agree. That. Yeah. They don't. No. That's correct. Yeah. So one of the points that you make in your book is that farmers need to keep pace with and respond to consumer trends, which we've been talking mm -hmm. about. But, mm -hmm. you know, the infrastructure can sometimes be very constricting, difficult to change. I think of the mm -hmm. dairy industry, which is declining in mm -hmm. part because in your book, you point out a lot of shoppers mm -hmm. are switching to the plant-based, quote unquote, yeah. milk beverages. Yeah. And you can't easily switch from cows to almonds. So how can cover <laughs> yeah. crops and no-till help them? Or are there other ways they should be looking at developing resilience? 
Oh, that's a really complicated question that I'm not sure if I have a surefire answer other than I think farmers need to reflect and ponder a little bit where they're going to be in 10 years. And that puts a little bit more reality to this. Where is the world headed? It's interesting. I just saw on, I guess it was AgWeb. I get their daily email. And they said six mega trends for consumers by 2030. And that caught my eye because I'm interested in that kind of stuff. And I forget what all the six were, but it was a lot of the things I've touched on. And so what I tell farmers is, you know, just don't ignore this. I, I, every farmer is going to be different. I mean, you know, Monty Bottens, he's been a speaker at the No-Till Conference from Illinois, and he's also from California. He's a corn soybean farmer who now has uh, grazing chickens and cows and beef and everything. It's like, and I interviewed him for one of my podcasts, one of my own webinars once. And I said, Monty, why are you doing this? You're a corn soybean farmer. He goes, because I enjoy growing what people want. He said, people don't want my corn and soybean. Uh-huh. They could care less. Uh-huh. And he said, I want to grow what people want. They want pasture-raised stuff. And I just thought that is the mindset that will make these guys successful that will do this. I mean, if you're sitting in the middle of Nebraska, I get it. You're not going to grow pumpkins like I do, probably. You probably don't have the market. But there's beginning to evolve uh, some different specialty markets. And, and again, there's I'm not going to portray that I know what they all are. But they're developing. They're coming. Go to meetings. Talk to people. Uh, if you just sit around and do nothing, you will be in danger of becoming obsolete. Now, I can't give people specific advice on what they should do other than be aware of what's out there. I mean, Cargill just announced their carbon thing a couple weeks ago. Bayer doing some stuff with carbon and that to me is a good sign. Well, I think all the specialty markets are really exciting and all the diversification mm-hmm. and marketing is really something that a lot of uh, no-tillers in particular, I think, are yeah. going to be able to take advantage of. Yeah. So, have you heard of dogfish beer, the craft beer dogfish? Yeah, I think I have. Uh-huh. They have a couple different things. They just come out with a regen ale, regen ag ale or regen ale. Oh, that's great. It's wheat grown from Kansas. They're headquartered in Delaware, actually, but they're getting wheat from Kansas grown with no-till and cover crops, and you're using that to make their craft beer. It's a brand name, Regen Ale. I grew some barley here. We're not in a good barley area here. We're too moist to get good quality barley, but they wanted it because they wanted locally grown for their craft beer around here in in the Mid-Atlantic region. It's just crazy. And then they paid me uh, an ice premium to do that. Although, that being said, I did it for three years and only got one year that it was good enough for them. But I just moved it on. It just went to animal feed. So it wasn't a waste of time for me, but I did take advantage of it. And those are the things that you got to do. Right. So one of the things you wrote about in your book was uh, that in the 1980s, New Zealand and Australia eliminated their crop insurance and subsidy programs. So Mm -hmm. why did they do that? And do you know how it impacted the ag industry there? Okay. I don't know specific details of why they did it. Okay. I just know they did it and it created a lot of angst within the farming community. I heard that between 10 and 20% of farmers went out of business over it over a couple of years because it was pretty cold turkey. I don't think they gave them a lot of warning. I don't know the specifics, but here's what I noticed. I've been to Australia twice. And what I saw in Australia, and I was taken all over the place. I did dozens of SOPs over those two years. What I saw is instead of having these 100, 200,000 bushel grain bins, two or three of them at a farm for corn and for soybeans, they had like five or six, 30, 40, 50,000 bushel grain bins okay. because they're growing like five or six different crops. Diversity is their crop insurance wow. and cover crops are their crop insurance. It makes us all more resilient and it forced them 
to look into some of this. And this is some of the problems I have with our USDA's system that they have. You know, it's, it's creeping in a good direction, but crop insurance has been in the way of some of these soil health practices. It's right. been a challenge using cover crops and kill dates and termination dates. And that's why I don't use it. I don't want to have these rules I have to follow. I want to kill my cover crop when I should kill it based on that year's weather and moisture and all that. So I think right now the farmers in Australia, I don't hear them bemoaning the fact that they don't have crop insurance, but that's what they did. They had to they forced them to diversify. What does that tell you? It tells you that, as you said before, and as I said, our soils on life support and you know you have a tough year things are going to get bad and you know you'll need your crop insurance whereas if on the other hand if you have your soil it's more resilient it's going to be your crop insurance you mentioned this so you finished this book maybe right before the covid-19 pandemic broke out yeah. right yeah yes right yeah so- yep mm-hmm. Has your perspective on the future-proof farm changed at all in light of all the supply chain challenges yeah. that we saw early on yeah, well, I think it strengthened my resolve. We went to print, I think, there in March. I asked the publisher, should I mention something? And we didn't know where it was going to end up, so we right. did not. But that's okay, because it basically kind of plays into COVID in a good way. I mean, I, I tell people that try to buy your food as close to the farm as you can. And farm market stands have increased their business because of COVID. Uh, There's a lot less restaurants open and people got to buy food. So I think COVID has been a very positive thing for direct marketing and direct sales and fresh food. I I can clearly tell you that. I've had the best year ever with my tomatoes, the highest prices ever. I don't have all my squash in yet, but it's looking really good. And I think that's because of the awareness that people have had. So there's been a pretty big uptick in interest in cover crops recently. I saw a survey, some corn and 40% of corn and soy growers are going to be planting cover crops. What do you think? about adoption rates for covers and no-till going forward? I see a healthy, steady upper trend. That's what I see. I think there's momentum with the more people that are doing it, it's a positive peer pressure, it's momentum. Again, I'll just circle back. Cargill, Bayer, they all have pretty strong initiatives out there. We'll see how that maybe moves the needle, but it all helps. It all helps. There is no indicators that I'm aware of that are showing for decreased cover crop use. It's all uptick way beyond now what I ever thought it was going to be. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I bet, because you've been doing this a long yeah. time. So yeah. speaking of doing it a long time, do the benefits of no-till and cover crops ever plateau or something? It hasn't yet on my farm. I wonder where it could. I'm in southeastern Pennsylvania. This was all woods. So my organic matter in the zero to four inches in my woods is about 8%, and at zero to six inches, it's about six, 7%. So I think that's where I'm trying to get at, because I think that's where it used to be. So I'm not there quite yet. I'm headed there, getting close. Pretty remarkable. I'm getting close. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So that's what I'm thinking on that regard. Okay. Well, you know, Steve, I guess this is about time to wrap this up, but it's been fantastic. You're obviously a really knowledgeable guy and you're doing Mm -hmm. what you were meant to do. Do you have any final words for our listeners? When I sign my books, I say, stay curious and keep learning. And then that's really what it comes down to. That's how I've got to where I've gotten. People ask me, where did you go to college? 
I'm like, whoa, I'm actually still in college. I'm still learning. I actually never went to college. But the point I say is keep up on things because if you don't, you are in danger of becoming obsolete. We have opportunity in front of us here. This whole health message resonates well with the non-farming public. And when people ask me, well, what's a cover crop? And if I'm here in my home region of the Chesapeake Bay, I said, well, a cover crop, it helps keep the nitrogen and the phosphorus and the sediment out of the Chesapeake Bay and your groundwater. And then they like, oh, well, that's a good thing. Why don't all farmers do this? And then I take it from there. Uh-huh. It's a good story. The soil health story is a good story. When you can tell people my fields are green in the winter because I'm saving my soil from eroding away, from blowing away. We're keeping the nutrients in my farm and all those things. So that's just what I do to try to gauge people who may not know really what cover crops are, are doing soil health stuff. So. Well, very good. Yeah. Hey, really appreciate good talking your time. to you, Julie. Yeah, thank you. You're quite welcome. All right, take yep. care. Hey, we'll see you. Yep. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to cover crop coach Steve Groff of Cedar Meadow Farm for this conversation about the future-proof farm. Find out more about Steve at stevegroff.com. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.